Welcome to Data Basic, a Warwick Data Science Society podcast aimed at making data science simple and accessible. Today, our theme is reproducible data science. It may not be the flashiest topic, but if companies are willing to pay through the roof to hire someone who specializes in it, it certainly warrants discussion. With that in mind, in this episode, we'll be talking to Becky Arnold, an astrophysics researcher at Keele University. She made large contributions to The Turing Way, a book about how to do data science properly, and she'll be telling us all about what we can do as data scientists to make our work more reproducible. So could you tell us a bit of background about yourself first? Uh, yeah, sure. So I am an astrophysicist by training. Uh, I work at the University of Kiel at the moment, and my research mostly centres around doing computer simulations of young star-forming regions to try and understand how these regions evolve over time and from that to understand more about how they form and the process of star formation as a whole. Um, I'm also really interested in both uh, data and statistics and how we can best employ that because something something with astrophysics at the moment is we're getting this huge flood of data from all these survey telescopes and all the rest of it. Uh, Particularly at the moment that's really exciting in my field is uh, Gaia is giving us so much data about not just the positions of stars but the velocities and how they move which previously that data was really hard to get the movement data and as somebody that studies how these clusters evolve from going to just having the positions of the stars to having how the, where the stars are and how they're moving is like from going to seeing black and white to being able to see in colour. So it's fantastic. <laughs> but we need, but the, the field simply isn't equipped to deal with all this data and all these new kinds of data in an effective way. So there's no point putting all this money and time into collecting all this data if we don't have effective statistical tools to make the most of it. So that's something I'm really interested in looking into and developing how we can make the most of the data we have. And the other field that I'm really, really interested in is uh, programming and how more and more programming is something that is not just a tool for research, it is the research because you get your data but you have to analyze and process that and come to your conclusions. and. The code we write, if you do coding, or even if you just use software to do it, like something in more of the softer sciences is more common, but even so, how we analyze the data is so, so vital, and particularly with coding, people don't generally have a good education in coding if you're a researcher. Like, when I was an undergraduate, I had coding classes, but not many. They were mostly like, oh, this is what a for loop is, this is what a while loop is, go have fun. Mm, information on coding but no information on how to like code well which given that is like 90 percent of what i and a lot of people in my field do is kind of a major gap so i'm really interested in how we can use the tools that we have related to any sort of computing methodology whether it is like raw coding in a like code file or if it's even just using software how we can do that to produce better more uh, more reproducible more sustainable and ultimately more powerful research to get us able to answer those fundamental questions we're going after how does the world work or if you're in a more practical field than astrophysics like how can we improve it faster um so yeah those those are sort of three main things i'm interested in like astrophysics statistics and like uh like software Right. Fantastic. So 
I mean, we hear sometimes uh, or quite often now about how in certain fields that weren't normally, um, they didn't normally have so much data. Now they're suddenly in the in recent years getting tons and tons of data. So data science has become infinitely more useful in these fields where before it was sort of basic statistics. But now we're dealing with huge quantities of data coming in all the time. So it really opens new doors if you can program or if you can you do data, do data science. Um, and that brings us on to talking about the Turing Institute and the Turing Way. So first of all, uh, could you give us sort of a, an introduction to what is the Turing Institute as a whole? Absolutely. So it's sort of the National Institute for Data Science at its most fundamental site in like 2015. And as of 2017, artificial intelligence has also been brought under its remit. But it's an institution in the British Library that sort of like, it's kind of the idea is to sort of act, act as kind of a nexus and also to help collaboration between different universities and different institutions to do research and enable projects that maybe individual institutions wouldn't be so capable with on their own, but geared primarily towards research that is intensive towards data science. So I understand that there was a document or, a, or let's say a, almost, well, let's say a book um, by the Turing Institute or by researchers at the Turing Institute called The Turing Way, um, which sort of covers how to do data science properly or well that's that's certainly my initial impression of it could you give uh, more of a overview of what the Turing way is and and who's it for and what was your involvement in uh, in in its construction i suppose ebook is kind of the best description of it but it's available in different formats there's sort of like a website where you can sort of click through it in a fairly typical fashion and it is exists as a guide for reproducible research and a number of other things it's involved, involved with sort of creating research projects and managing them in an effective way. Uh, the project was uh, developed by Dr. Kirsty Whittaker at the Turing Institute and she essentially got a load of people together inside this project to put together this resource and at the start I was one of the sort of main people involved with just producing uh, like chapters and just information to go into the book to get to get the project off the ground with the idea that in the future as it's an open source project more and more people could contribute to it it could improve upon it and it would sort of take flight on its own as you can see on the sort of github repository more and more people from around the world are sort of contributing to it so that's right. what exists in terms of target audience uh, it's mostly geared towards researchers so the idea that if a researcher is like I, I, I'm a researcher and I want to do better research. I want to make my uh, research more robust and more sustainable, but I have no training on this. How do I do this? So what are the things that I can do? What will those get me? What would be best for what I want to achieve for my specific project? So that's kind of what it exists to do. So in the previous answer, you spoke a little bit about GitHub and uh, reproducibility in research. What do you really mean when you say research is reproducible or how, uh, what do you mean as I, I want my research to be more reproducible okay so if somebody has done some research and another researcher is out there and they read an academic paper sort of saying okay this is the methodology this is the sort of results there is a big big and they want to reproduce those findings they want to test them or they want to extend them or whatever there is a big big gap between having just a pdf file 
with the sort of outline of how the research was done and the actual ability to reproduce those findings. I mean, the first and most obvious uh, sort of thing to overcome is, is the data available? Because if somebody reading it wants to reproduce it and they don't have the original data set, well, they're, it's kind of game over from day one. They can maybe go over and collect their own data set, but you don't know what differences that would be that would be in that data set. So things like making the data set publicly available so other people can make use of it because we want our science and our research to have the best impact possible and making things publicly available is a big, big step, not only in other people being able to reproduce your results, but to sort of extend their impact and to go further with it. Um, another thing about reproducibility is there is a large, large gap between, say, a method section in a paper, which may be a few pages long, maybe, and the months and months of work that a researcher or a team of researchers did to actually produce all the pretty results and all the conclusions in the like, in the later sections. There is those couple of pages of methodology is kind of the idea of how the idea of an academic paper is okay. People should be able to reproduce from this, but it just does not. It's just not adequate a couple of pages in uh, of explanation of methodology. So things like putting, uh, so to go back to GitHub like I was uh, saying, putting your code or whatever files you did in order uh, had in order to produce your results in a place that is publicly available, such as GitHub, which is a sort of a file widely used file hosting sort of center that other people can then look at your code or look at your files and be actually able to see how these results were produced, which is, from that, that is something that gets you a lot further down the, uh, down the road to actually being able to reproduce something. And it actually is it's about the central question of research isn't, or science isn't science unless it's repeatable. Like, how do we know that these results are cor correct? Because if you can't check it, you don't really know is the sort of key argument for this. Where would you say we currently are with reproducible research and what are the current problems? What are the sort of problems we're facing right now? I would say one of the biggest problems that we're facing is when researchers typically have a thousand and one things they need to do, researchers will typically tell you that their biggest constraint is time because particularly like they might have teaching responsibilities they need to do sort of uh, administrative uh, responsibilities as well as potentially supervising PhD students or just undergraduate students as well as finding time to do their research. Could you clarify why someone who has a thousand and one things to do should definitely take the time to focus on reproducibility? Yeah absolutely because fundamentally as, as busy as everybody is they don't have time not to focus on reproducibility because nobody has time to spend five years of their life on a project ultimately to find out they were going down completely the wrong path in the first place. And then, and there have been examples of this where like a single plus that should have been in a minus in a chemistry code caused a whole bunch of fascinating results to come out of that simulation, as you would expect, because very, very unexpected results, which led to like, and something like five retracted papers down the road, which uh, it was a huge, huge thing. And so much time, so much research, people's careers, because it was a fascinating and important result. <laughs> um, ultimately, people don't have the time to spend a 
huge amount of time on their research if it's not reproducible because ultimately right. it might be wrong. So spending time on making sure that you and anybody else can go back along your project at any point and reproduce the results you have is really, really worthwhile. And also it's it's important for other aspects as well because making your research, like making your data publicly available or making your code publicly available, that's something people can find and make use of and incorporate into their work, which leads to more citations for a research, which if you're a researcher that's just trying to get your next postdoc and to have a job next year, having more people know your name, making use of your research can be really, really helpful career-wise as well. Okay, so could you highlight a few things that would be easy wins, let's say, or things that you think would make the most impact uh, given the simplicity of learning for researchers or, or and, yeah, researchers or people who want to do re reproducible research? So a couple I've sort of spoken about briefly before, which is the most fundamental, put your data somewhere that it can be publicly accessed. So more and more journals nowadays are at least giving the option, if not the necessity, to provide your data along with it. So that might be an easy thing. Um, it could be that your particular discipline or your subject has repositories um, that are geared towards your sort of data set. But if you are in a situation where there's no obvious place for you to put your data set somewhere, that I would really encourage you to talk to is your university library because librarians don't just deal with books, they deal with resources and making those resources findable and available and easily usable and very, very highly trained people that will most likely be very eager to help you get your data set perhaps into a format or even if it's already in the most format, just making it somewhere that people can make use of it and can find it. So they would be a good uh, people to talk to. I've said about putting your code or whatever files you use online, GitHub is a really good uh, repository for that. Something I would also follow up on that is GitHub also, when you create a repository and put your files on it, gives the option to add a license. Do that, it's easy. There's a drop down menu, use a Creative Commons license or a MIT license, which basically gives people the legal right to then download your data or your code and to change it, to make use of it, to do whatever they want to do with it, which again, allows your research to go further and be of more use ultimately. Um, in terms of easy wins, another one I would say is documentation, because there is nothing that hurts my soul more than seeing somebody's like, I haven't made my data publicly available, <laughs> and it is just text files full of columns and rows of numbers. Oh, yeah, there's no metadata to the no. data, so you have to ask them, what is this? What is this column yeah. that's called reg? Yes. And it's just some trues and falses. I have no idea. Yes, or, or even what units is in. Like, people oh, put, yeah. like, put speed in uh, lots of uh, data, but is in parsecs per mega? Is it in kilometres per second? What yeah. Is it? So things like that. There's this really funny and kind of tragic YouTube video called the data sharing panda or something and it's about this poor postdoc that's trying to uh, get to, trying to do some reproducibility and they eventually managed to wrest the data off the original writers of the uh, project and they said okay this column's called Sam and this column's called Sam 1 what what does that mean and they go oh Sam was the name of the uh, PhD student that did the analysis like okay 
um, can I get in contact with Sam to see what these columns are? And they went, oh, oh, Sam's from a different country and they've gone back and I don't have their contact details anymore. Oh. So it's just like that research can't be produced. So yes, for the love of God, I am begging you. <laughs> 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 it's two lines. These are, this is what it is. This is the units. Um, and yeah. that's for the data set itself, but for the code on the files, a readme file, which is just a text file, just put a text file saying, because when we do research, questions evolve, things happen. Often projects end up in kind of a mess where you've got things that didn't really work out or you've got just kind of files everywhere. And if you're somebody that comes across this and is trying to reproduce the results, imagine just opening poor innocent eyes onto the mess and the wreckage of a research project that has been like years down the line and it's just an absolute like spaghetti tangle of things. Oh no. A, a readme file, because uh, it happens, it happens and it's so easy. And yeah. but and you know what all the things are. So a readme file of just like, okay, this these are the files you need to pay attention to, run this, take the data from it, put it into that, da, 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 this will give you the plots. Things yeah. like that, which will take you so little time to write because you know it, um, but will make an enormous improvement to the reproducibility of your research. So yeah, that's something I would really, really advocate for people to do. Those are the three things. Your data, your metadata, um, and your code, um, or, or your files, just making them publicly available are, are three huge steps forward. And none of them take that much time. So we've talked a little bit about reproducibility and keeping your data open and your code open. Now, this reminds me of something called open source. So could you could you explain what open source is um, and what are some of its positives and negatives? So open source is about making things publicly available and publicly usable. So most commonly in researching open source software. So if I write a code to do a particular bit of analysis that could be useful to other people in my field, making that available so other people can download it, maybe make changes to adapt it to specifically a particular problem they're trying to make use of um, and generally sort of improve and build upon the project but it doesn't have to be niche little things for a specific discipline or a specific field open source projects are huge and they are yeah I can, I can think of like python and python libraries which are really fundamental for pretty much all the science i do and so many other open source projects um, so these things are obviously good in terms of positives and negatives on like positives yay everybody can make use of the valuable things and everybody can have tools to enable them to progress faster whereas if they didn't everybody would have to produce their own versions of these tools and just everything would be infinitely slower um, so there's that and also in terms of uh, it, of uh, positives by making these things open other people can correct bugs, can improve upon other people's work, can make the tools more robust than any one single person can do on their own. Um, in terms of negatives, I guess in terms of why somebody might contribute to these things, it's, uh, it's an investment of time, obviously, and we've spoken about how precious time is and how much it can be work in order to clean up your project to make it sort of in a state where not only that other people could reproduce it but use it within their own work is a big time investment and it can be a trade-off because do you really get much out of that personally and yeah no increasingly more and more because 
there's been this big push to make software citable because it is a valuable scientific output that other people can make use of but historically software hasn't been cited which in terms of if again you are a researcher you are eyeing the end of your contract and looking at getting a new one in a competitive field do you want to spend the time it will take to get your project in a way that other people can use or uh, use it and, and improve upon if you aren't going to get any sort of academic credit for it um, so that's a big incentive against that in versus spending time on your own research. One thing about open source that people can sometimes be scared about is it's quite daunting to go into an open source project that's been going on for a while and try and make their own contributions. Um, what? T tell me a little bit about the culture of, of open source and some of the things that well, I know that you, you're not a huge fan of every single thing in it. So could you tell me a, a bit about why that is? I would say the culture of open source projects vary very, very widely because, you know, all sorts of people run all open source projects and some of them are very nice and friendly and welcome them, welcoming and some of them are not. Um, so <laughs> so which again, if you are a new person trying to like, oh, there's this cool project and I think I can make this little improvement to it. Okay, I'm going to suggest this to this project. Sometimes people aren't nice. Sometimes people go out of their way to be cruel to newcomers. And yeah. It sucks. And honestly, my advice is those people are not worth your time. Just spend your time and effort, unless you absolutely have to for some fundamental reason, on someone who is worth it. Because there are so many welcoming and kind and inclusive communities out there that have their projects that they love and they want like and for new people it's like oh come and join us and help us with this <laughs> thing that have those supportive communities mm. seek those out because those are the ones that are actually worth your t uh, investing your time in so yeah the culture of open source varies as widely as you know people do i would say but and it's very very easy to be daunted because i have seen people just go out of their way to be cruel to newcomers and mm. but i've also seen people go so far out of their way to be kind and to teach people that are, are new and don't really understand what they're doing the ropes so if you are a newcomer i would say be persistent and don't let it get you down if you are unlucky enough to deal with unpleasant people because there are good people out there um, you also mentioned about uh, how somebody would get into it. There are a number of sites like First Timers Only um, and Co-Triage, which exists to give people like easy routes into open source projects. So easy little issues that you could look at, like, oh, this documentation's no good. Can somebody make a small change where you're just fixing up things, uh, some documentation to make it a bit clearer or to remove some typos? So it's a nice, easy, bite-sized thing to learn on. So those sort of resources, and also just how to get into Google, how to get into open source projects, things like that. There are people want people to be involved in their projects by and large because they love them and they're proud of them, and they are. And people devote their lives to these sort of things, and it can be fun. It can be a fun to have. Okay, there's these problems. How can little tiny problems? How can I go about solving these? So, yeah, there are routes in, and like I said, first timers only. And also the co-triage are good places to start for people that are interested in this sort of thing. So I understand you're in um, research software engineering. Could you tell us more about what that is? Research software engineering essentially is a 
field is kind of a way to put it that is rapidly developing particularly in the uk the uk is kind of considered a world leader on this that it essentially goes biologists aren't taught programming physicists aren't really taught programming in any great detail or software or how to analyze data it's more about focusing on biology or physics or whatever i've said before about how coding education uh, undergraduate level and even postgraduate level is very very limited compared to the amount it actually is actually involved in data science and, and just in research in general so research software engineering essentially goes okay we will have people that know a lot about coding and researchers that have a coding project that they don't really know how to go about or they have questions about how to improve can come to them and say okay this is the scientific problem i'm trying to solve how do i turn that into software or a coding problem and how do i solve that so or even for example if somebody has a simulation they want to run and they can run it on their laptop but then they need to run it on a high performance computing system for you know 10,000 times to make it 10,000 times more powerful if they've got their little small one working and they need to extend it so that might be something they have no idea how to do so being able to go to somebody who knows about a lot about software engineering and enough about research you know sort of the ins and outs and the sort of considerations that need to be made but isn't a biologist or a physicist or a chemist or a social scientist or whatever um, but knows enough about the methodology to be able to take what they know about software engineering or or just coding in general and to take what uh, the scientist or researcher knows about their field and to put them together to create solutions in order to advance the research better so increasingly at universities groups of research software engineers are being developed and like sheffield is one i was actually a member of the sheffield research software engineering group for a while um, and others so these groups are growing and they're growing internationally uh, as well. Um, it's actually something that was developed by the Software Sustainability Institute. It's actually at their sort of annual conference where the term research software engineer, software engineer um, was first sort of developed. Um, so yeah, it's something that is definitely growing and has been immensely popular and has been immensely oversubscribed in my experience because a lot of researchers, like I said, want to do good coding practice and want to do their research well but they don't know how so having these groups of people that know about these sort of things that are available to answer those sort of questions has been tremendously valuable I think and will be tremendously valuable into the future. And so what are some of the opportunities at the Software Sustainability Institute? So the Software Sustainability Institute uh, runs a fellowship program each year. I was a fellow one year back in like 2017 or something I don't remember God. <laughs> it's been a while <laughs> but, um, uh, but yeah it runs a, a fellowship pro uh, program which uh, essentially gives money for people that want to advocate or run re uh, run workshops or whatever want funding to do projects that will help involve uh, improve coding practice at any level in their institution primarily geared towards researchers but you know, if we can teach the undergrads and the postgrads, uh, post that's fantastic as well because they're the next generation. Um, it also runs uh, the Software Carpentries, uh, or 
also and, uh, came out of the Software Sustainability Institute, which essentially tackles that problem I was talking about earlier of people being taught how to code but not being taught how to code well or what good code looks like or how to approach a big research project in a way that is sustainable and won't collapse under its own weight into a big pile of tangled spaghetti. So the uh, co-carpentry's workshops, they're also running uh, new workshops I think, I think starting this year um, on like research software camp and also uh, research software engineering intermediate sort of level training. So those are being started and I think they're looking to do more and more training in the future. Um, so yeah, those resources are available to learn more about that sort of aspect of things. And I'd also say if you've got a research software engineering group in your institution to talk to them about if they've got any projects that you could work on or anything that you think they think might be an interesting opportunity. It can't hurt to ask. It's, it's an email. The worst they can do is not reply. Um, so yeah, I would say try getting into contact with those sort of groups if they, if they exist at your institution. Thank you very much to Becky for joining us and thank you for listening. We're very excited to announce that next episode we'll be talking to Simon Print, the head of analytics at Walgreens Boots Alliance. Simon has been with the company since 1998 and he's been named one of the most influential people in data numerous times by Data IQ. I hope you'll join us next time. I'll see you then.